So this morning we're going to start by, by setting the stage with some geography. And uh, so we'll have the, the map up to start with. I, I will note that it, uh, it's in Spanish. We should be able to figure out the names anyway. Um, I couldn't find a map in all of my resources that just did what I wanted it to do, except for one in Spanish. So there we are. Jesus was born in, uh, we know, Bethlehem of Judea, down in the south. But he was raised in Nazareth of Galilee in the north. And the majority of his public ministry took place in Galilee. Now, Galilee in Jesus' day, again, setting the stage here, was predominantly a Jewish province. So it was, it was not as, quite as despised as Samaria in the middle. Um, so it was a predominantly Jewish province, but there were significant centers of Hellenism in Galilee. Hellenism means centers of Greek, Greek influence, Gentile influence. So Tiberias and Magdala on the coasts of the Sea of Galilee were Hellenistic cities, um, predominantly, you might say, pagan, essentially. Sepphoris uh, was another one further, further west. The book of Judges tells us that 1,400 years earlier, the two Israel, Israelite tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, up there where the province of Galilee would be, they failed to drive out the Canaanites who were living in their midst in the area of Galilee. 450 years after that, we hear of Solomon, the king of Israel, giving 20 cities in Galilee to the Gentile king of Tyre. And then some 200 years after that, the king of Assyria comes along and takes most of the Jews away and repopulates Galilee with Gentiles. So you kind of see... What's happening? One commentator says that even before the deportation, the Galilean region had always been something of a melting pot. We talk about America as kind of the melting pot. Um, But here's Galilee as the melting pot with Hebrews, Canaanites, Arameans, Hittites, and Mesopotamians all contributing to the mix. It was in this region, and I would note this region furthest away from Jerusalem and Judea in the south. So furthest away up there in the north on the fringes of the, of the land that was the promised land for the people of Israel, that Israel commonly encountered the rest of the world. Now that was the way it was in the days of the Israelite kings. It was also still the way it was in the days of Jesus. When he was publicly ministering in, where? Galilee. That's where he is. So Matthew draws our attention to what's so special and significant about this. When he writes in Matthew chapter 4, Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he departed into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, where he had grown up, he came and lived in Capernaum, which is by the sea. Of Galilee, And then he says, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, in order that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, 
Galilee of the Gentiles. And the word there in the Greek Old Testament is ethnos. So we could say Galilee of the nations. Now we think of Galilee as Israelite territory. But because of its history, because of its nature as a melting pot, because it was furthest away from Judah and Jerusalem, it becomes known to Isaiah, he calls it, Galilee of the nations. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land in shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From that time, in Galilee, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay, so it's true. When Jesus sent his disciples out, he said, don't go to any city of the Samaritans and don't go in the way of the Gentiles. You go only to the Jews. And yet, and yet, the fact that the majority of Jesus' public ministry is taking place not in Judea, but in Galilee of the Gentiles, is in your handout a sign that one day the kingdom is going to go out to all the nations, okay? So now you see that little tiny black circle in the corner? Yeah, that's, that's where it started, right? But that, that Jesus engaged in the majority of his ministry in Galilee of the nations is the sign that one day this is going to happen. And of course, that's just the known world in the first and second century. We don't even show up on that map, and here we are. Isn't that an amazing and wonderful and miraculous thing? Before Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem of Judea, that's where he died, he tells his disciples, almost all of whom are from Galilee. So where did Jesus pick his disciples? They're all Galileans, except for maybe Judas Iscariot. He says, after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. The angels at the empty tomb, they meet the women, and what do they say to the women? Go quickly, tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. What's the big deal about Galilee? Why do we got to go all the way back to Galilee? Just because that's our home? I don't think so. There's more going on here than that. So twice we've heard that. Now the women are running to report this to the disciples, and Jesus meets them on the way, and he repeats the words of the angels. Do not be afraid. Go and report to my brothers to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. And so what happens in Galilee? Galilee of the nations, ethnos. That's where Jesus comes to the disciples and first commissions them, first commissions them to go and make disciples of all the nations. Ethnos. And so we see it happening, what was signified in the fact that Jesus' ministry took place there, predominantly, is now coming to its fruition, its fulfillment, as Jesus sends them out to all the nations. But now, here at the beginning of Acts 1, where are the disciples? They're back in Judea. What happened? They're in Jerusalem again. Now, my guess, I mean, the the disciples are all from Galilee. That's where they grew up. That's where they lived. That's where they worked. That's where they did the majority of their ministry with Jesus. So why do you think they're back now in Jerusalem? 
I don't think they're already back for the Feast of Pentecost. Perhaps they are. In any case, they're there. Maybe Jesus told them to go. I mean, they would have come for Pentecost, but it's still at least 10 days until that. So, my guess is that it was Jesus who told them to return there. In any case, it was Jesus who commanded them, in no uncertain terms, not to leave Jerusalem. Remember, he kept saying, go to Galilee, there you'll see me. Now he says, don't leave Jerusalem, don't move. But wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard of from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So it's really important to Jesus that they be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not in Galilee, but in Jerusalem. It has to happen there. So after all this focus on Galilee of the nations, why? Why is Jesus so adamant that they not leave Jerusalem? Why is it so important to be baptized with the Spirit in Jerusalem? Certainly, and I'll I'll, I'll emphasize, not in Galilee of the Gentiles. No, no, it's not to happen there. Not in Galilee of the Gentiles, but in Jerusalem of the Jews. That's where this needs to happen. Certainly there's a strategic reason, which we'll see in Acts chapter 2. The fact that on the day of Pentecost, there's going to be Jews from every nation under heaven, every ethnos under heaven, dwelling in Jerusalem, staying in Jerusalem. But there's a theological reason. We've already seen it hinted at in that strategic reason. Okay, so first, there's this salvation historical priority of the Jews. It's just a historical priority. It's not that they're better than the Gentiles. But there's a salvation historical priority. So Paul says things like, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, right? But then there's also the fact that as the proclamation of the kingdom radiates outward. Now here's an important picture. The kingdom is going to be proclaimed, and it's going to radiate, it's going to spread outward from Jerusalem. Of Judea. And as that happens, we're going to be seeing the boundaries of this Israel, of this new covenant Israel, expanding. It's like, it's like God is taking the boundaries of Israel and he keeps moving the boundaries further and further and further out as the apostolic message of the kingdom goes further and further and further out. And so Israel comes to, to encompass Nations, peoples from all the face of the earth. We see that in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 where Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. And he he specifies first in Jerusalem and then in all Judea and Samaria and then even to the end of the earth. So you see how it it is Jerusalem first, but that all the end of the earth, the end of the earth, is included now in this Israel. So that's in that light that Paul, the same Paul who writes this, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He's the same guy who says there is neither Jew nor Greek. To the Jew first, also to the Greek. There is neither Jew nor Greek. We see that going on right here as it starts in Jerusalem, but then begins to encompass more and more and more. Notice how Jesus highlights the expansion of the boundaries of Israel. 
from Jerusalem, what, what does he say? To all Judea and Samaria and then to the end of the earth. What's missing there? Galilee, right? We wonder, where's Galilee? Well, Galilee of the nations has been replaced now with what? The actual end of the earth. So I love the picture. When Jesus is ministering in Galilee to the Jewish people, um, it's Galilee of the Gentiles. So in fact, Jesus was already ministering at the end of the earth. Right? That which would signify one day the literal ends of the earth. We see it signified already. So there'll be no ethnic, there'll be no geographical boundaries to this new covenant Israel of God. But it's for that very reason that it must begin here. It must begin in Jerusalem. It's got to start there. So that we see the continuity with the Old Testament. With the Old Covenant Israel, this is the New Covenant Israel beginning in Jerusalem, but now going to encompass all the earth. That's, that's the glory and the power of the book of Acts. So it's with this in mind that we read now in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. And by the way, we're going to come back to that whole theme at the end again. So hang on to that. Verses 12 to 14, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, just, just outside the walls across the valley, Kidron Valley, a Sabbath day's journey away. So basically two-thirds of a mile, 2,000 cubits. There's stuff there in your handout if you want to look that, that up. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is Peter, and let's count, right? Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. Oh yeah, there's just 11, right? In every other list in the Gospels, there's been 12, and that was 11. These all with one accord were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Again, scriptures to look at there. Just want to ask you this question. What do the disciples do? What do they do? Along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers, while they're waiting for the promise of the Father. It's not a Sunday school question for us to say, I, I, I know the word. Right? I just want us to think about it. What do they do? What do they do while they're waiting for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which will empower them to be as witnesses in all the earth? What do they do while they're waiting for Messiah's kingdom to begin its spread to all the nations? What do they do while they're waiting for this new covenant Israel to be born? Okay. They pray. And how... I, I just, I don't know, I thought about what to say about this. Well, it's pretty simple. <laughs> it's simple, it's, it's also profound. That, they, that it is at this time, that it is at this moment in particular, where they sense the, the, the need for prayer. They could have said, well, Jesus just told us, I guess, to wait, right? We can't do anything until the Spirit comes upon us, so they'll sit and wait. But no, that's not what they're doing. They're sitting, knowing what Jesus has promised, what do they do? They pray. Luke, more than Matthew and Mark, Luke emphasizes the necessity of, in your handout, prayer. 
for the coming of the kingdom. Whether it's, I mean, for, the, for its coming presently. So this is all in your hand now, but, and I, I hope this will just kind of uh, saturate into us as we hear this. Luke alone, Luke alone, not Matthew, not Mark, and not John. Luke alone includes the account of how the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of the incense offering when the angel comes to Zechariah in the temple and announces that his prayer had been answered and his wife Elizabeth would bear a son who would prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. See how the praying is connected with the kingdom and the coming of Messiah. Luke alone tells us that it was while Jesus was praying that heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, anointing him for his messianic task. Okay? So at his baptism, he was praying when the Spirit anointed him for his messianic task. Matthew and Mark don't tell us that. Luke tells us that. He says he was praying. Luke alone tells us that while Jesus was traveling throughout Galilee proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, he would often slip away to the desolate regions and pray. So this whole idea of the coming of the kingdom and Jesus' devotion to prayer are going hand in hand. Luke alone tells us that before choosing the twelve apostles, whom he would send out to proclaim the kingdom, Jesus went off to the mountain and spent the whole night in prayer to God. Luke alone tells us that it was after Jesus was praying alone that he asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? So Jesus has been praying alone. He's praying to his father. And coming out of that prayer, he says to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter confesses him to be the Messiah the king of Israel. Luke alone tells us that Jesus had gone up on the mountain to pray when he was transfigured. He didn't go up, uh, he says, I mean, his point is, he didn't go up simply to be transfigured. He went up on the mountain to pray. And it was while he was praying, Luke says, that he was revealed in his glory as God's chosen one, the Messiah, the king. Luke alone tells us that it was while Jesus was praying that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Matthew and Mark don't mention that. Luke mentions this. And so they say, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus teaches them to pray with these words, your kingdom come. Luke alone includes the parable that Jesus told in order to show the disciples that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. And specifically, what were they to pray for? Pray for vindication. Pray for the the salvation that's going to come to you when the kingdom is consummated and the Son of Man returns on the clouds of heaven. And Luke alone includes the parable that Jesus told about the Pharisee and the tax collector and the kind of prayer that leads to true greatness in his kingdom. If there was any doubt before, I, I hope it's been eliminated that Luke's theme of prayer is something close to his heart. It's obvious it was important to him that we see how indispensably 
essential. And I thought about just saying indispensable or just saying essential, but I decided to say indispensably essential. I think that's his point. Prayer is to what? To the coming of the kingdom. The kingdom doesn't come automatically. It comes guaranteed because of the sovereignty of the king, but it doesn't come automatically. Prayer is essential to its coming. So we're not surprised that in the book of Acts, which chronicles the first years of the coming of the kingdom, we're going to find the theme of prayer is throughout the book of Acts. And the references are all there in your handout. So what was it that characterized the early church when the kingdom was first coming with power? It was prayer. Luke says these all with one accord were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Now I think probably, I I, I think to be honest and fair, the unique nature of this specific moment and the coming of the kingdom and redemptive history um, probably because of that, the apostles are maybe praying more than they will be at other times. They, they don't have anything else to be doing after all. They're not out proclaiming yet, so they have all the time in the world to pray. But Luke still wants us to see, his point in this is that he wants us to see this is a basic pattern that the church should always be following. He wants us to see that being continually devoted to prayer with one accord is the, it, 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 this isn't, I don't think your handout here, but it is the key to the kingdom coming. And so it's not just an acts. The Apostle Paul uses the same word for continually devoted. He uses the same word when he exhorts the churches in Rome and in Colossae to be continually devoted to prayer. Remember, Paul exhorted the church in Thessalonica, pray without ceasing. And he exhorted the church in Ephesus to be praying at all times with all prayer and petition in the spirit and to be keeping alert in prayer with all perseverance. Now what I want us to see though is the context in which this prayer is happening. This prayer is taking place in the context of something triumphant, of something victorious of a kingdom that's about to take the world by storm. And it's the prayer that is empowering and and enabling this according to the sovereign will of God. The point is something that is engaged in habitually and consistently with great care and devotion. How could that not be a conviction to us? Then notice how Luke says that these all, with one accord, were continually devoting themselves to prayer. It's another theme Luke likes to emphasize. In fact, Luke, aside from Paul, who uses this word one time, Luke is the only one who uses this word. He uses it 10 or 11 times. So this is a theme he emphasizes on the good side for the Christians and also on the bad side sometimes for the, for the, the uh, enemies of the gospel. So in Acts chapter 2, we read that all those who believed were daily devoting themselves with one accord. Luke loves that word, especially when it comes to the believers. They were with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Chapter 5. The believers were still meeting together at the temple complex. 
with one accord. Chapter 15, we read how the apostles, the elders, and the whole church met together and came to one accord. And then in chapter 4, back in chapter 4, Luke says that the apostles and all the brethren lifted their voices to God with one accord. Luke just loves that. He celebrates it. And as a result of emphasizing that, he's also calling us to celebrate the same thing. So here in chapter 1, we could maybe say that they prayed with their hearts and their voices all joined in unison together. They prayed in your handout with one mind and one purpose, being in full agreement together. Now that is a beautiful picture, isn't it? So the first application here is that Luke expects that the church should be continually devoting itself to prayer. And to prayer together. Private prayer is important. But corporate prayer, or we could just say the church praying together, is equally important. In your handout, it is indispensably essential to the true growth of the church and the coming of Christ's kingdom. They're just together. They're linked. The one is necessary to the other. And we know that Christ has promised he will build his church. He will build his church. And yet Christ has also chosen the means by which he's going to accomplish that task. He's told us what the means are. So if one of those means is the proclamation of the gospel, which we're going to see throughout the book of Acts, then the other means, which we'll also see throughout the book of Acts, and the prior means, and the equally important means, is prayer. Prayer and proclamation. Some might say that the second application is that the church ought to be praying together with one accord. And that is true, but I want to Twist, uh, um, look at it a different way. I think we could ask, how when we are really praying together, like if we actually get together and we pray together, how can we not be in one accord? Now I know it's possible if we're praying to satisfy our own lusts, which we can do. But, but at a fundamental level, when we get together and we pray together, you just get in one accord, right? You, you, you realize that you are in one accord. Maybe you forgot that you were. And now you realize, oh, we are. We pray for the same things. We want the same things. True prayer together affirms in your handout and strengthens our oneness. It is the experience and the celebration of being in full agreement together. And I think that's what this is too, as we sit here and we listen together to the word of God. Enjoy your oneness. Enjoy the fact that we're in full agreement together as we say, this is important and I want to devote myself to the teaching of God's word. At the beginning of a work, and this, this, this somewhat you know, convicted me, at the beginning of a work, we often feel the necessity of prayer more acutely, don't we? When something is first beginning, we're, we're depending on God, we're looking to him. But when the work has matured, 
And when it has become established, what happens? We become less dependent upon the power of God. We begin to think as a church or as individuals, as Christians, that we can run under our own steam. And how do we betray the fact that we're thinking that way? Because you might say, well, I don't think that way. Well, how do we betray the fact that we are, whether we say that we are or not? It's by, I believe, our lack of commitment to prayer and to praying together. Luke reminds us that prayer is always indispensably essential for the work of the church and the coming of Christ's kingdom. Now, what were the apostles and the others with them agreed upon then as they prayed? What were they agreed upon? And this is maybe where we need our prayer life as individuals and as a church to be more robust, to be more something that does express our unity. Is What are we agreed upon? Well, here they were agreed upon their devotion to Jesus and their desire for the coming of his reign on this earth. That's what they were agreed upon. Can we be agreed upon that? And can we express that agreement in praying together for that? Because that is what they were praying for, the coming of Christ's kingdom. That they would be empowered, as Jesus had promised, to proclaim the arrival of that kingdom in all the earth. But we remember now that this proclamation in all the earth, which is what the disciples are preparing for, must begin in Jerusalem. So here we come back, and then we're going to come back at the very end to prayer and tie these things together. So the apostles were given clear instructions, don't leave Jerusalem. Why? Can anyone remember why? You don't have to tell me now, but why can't they leave Jerusalem? Because this new covenant people has to start in Jerusalem to show that it is the new Israel. That it it is Israel with its boundaries about to expand. When we think of old covenant Israel, what do you think of? Israel. Maybe one of the first things might come to your mind is the 12 tribes of Israel. So do you think it's an arbitrary thing that Jesus just kind of randomly, after spending all night in prayer to God, that he randomly chose 12 from his disciples, whom he named as apostles? Now, this isn't just about some cool connection. Oh, 12, 12, that's neat. This is about beauty. This is about something glorious. And brothers and sisters, this is about our ability to see the big picture of God's plan for us as his people. Jesus is about to take the believing remnant, okay, in old covenant Israel and constitute that remnant as the new covenant Israel. So there, was always a, there were always believing Jews scattered throughout the Old Covenant Israel. Jesus is about to take all those believing Jews, he's about to take that remnant and constitute that remnant as a nation, as the new Israel, the people of God, the people of the new covenant. The boundaries of this new covenant Israel are about to be restricted on the one hand, so as to include only believers, only true believers, only the regenerate. So Jesus is going to take the boundaries of Israel and restrict them only to regenerate believers. 
But at the same time, Jesus is going to take the boundaries and throw the doors wide open. He's going to expand the boundaries of this Israel so as to include people from all the nations of the earth. Remember Galilee of the nations. And so this new covenant Israel is to be the fulfillment of the old covenant Israel. It's the remnant within the assembly. The old covenant assembly was all of ethnic Jews. That was the old covenant assembly or church. Okay. But now the remnant, see the remnant in old covenant Israel, they didn't have their own assembly. They didn't have their own meetings. They didn't have their own gathering places. They didn't have their own temple. But now Jesus is taking that remnant out of that assembly and making them their own assembly. The ecclesia, the church. This is why, key word in your handout, this is why when Jesus chose the apostles to whom he would give the task of being his witnesses even to the end of the earth, he chose 12. I suppose Jesus could have chosen 70 because 70 nations in the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10. He could have said, well, this new covenant Israel is going to include people from all the nations, so let's have, let's have 70 apostles. Or maybe he knew how many nations there would ever be, and so he picked that many apostles. But no, when he's going to call out the new Israel, which will include all the nations, he chooses 12 apostles. In Luke's gospel, the apostles are called simply the 12. You don't don't call them, well, he does say that there were the 11 at some point. Because Judas Iscariot is described as one who belonged to the number of the twelve. Which raises the question, what hap- you know, Judas is gone. He's out of the picture. He's committed suicide, betrayed Jesus. So what happens now that the number is eleven? Do we really care? Eleven, twelve. I'm making a whole sermon on this. Right? Because it's wonderful. We read in verses 15 to 20 of Acts chapter 1, in those days, when the apostles, in those days, what are those days? Well, between his ascension and Pentecost, so 10 days there, but specifically these are the days when the apostles with one accord were continually devoting themselves to prayer. So flowing out of all that prayer comes this, okay? This isn't some random thing that Peter's like, ah, I think we should do that. We've got nothing else to do. Peter's been praying. They've all been praying. And now comes this. Peter stands up in the midst of the brothers. A crowd of about 120 persons was there together. And he said, men, brothers, it was necessary that the scripture be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was counted among us. He was counted among us and received his share or his lot in this ministry. And now I believe this is Paul inter- uh, Luke interjecting his own commentary here for a minute. Now this man acquired a field with the price of his unrighteousness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his intestines poured out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in their own language that field was called that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his residence be made desolate and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. 
So Peter sees two things. One, he sees that this whole thing that happened with Judas, his defection, this one who was counted among the apostles, received his lot in their ministry of proclaiming the kingdom, that was Judas's job with them, that this defection was not a chance occurrence. He says it was necessary that this should happen in order for the scripture to be fulfilled. We're going to come back to that next week. So all that, we're going to come back to next week. But there's something else Peter sees equally clearly. The defection of Judas, while it had to happen, it also requires, it requires now that another apostle be appointed in order to bring the number of the apostles back to 12. So we read in verses 21 to 22. Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time, here we see the qualifications of an apostle, which we've talked about before, of these men that have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Why, Peter? I'm serious about that, brothers and sisters. I'm really serious about that. Why? Is it really that big of a deal? Yes, it was. They're continually devoting themselves to prayer with one accord, and out of that prayer in this specific redemptive moment, Peter stands up and says, it is necessary. This must happen. Peter may be remembering what Jesus said before his death. So now, we're going to look at a couple things. So, Jesus said to the apostles, I grant you a kingdom, just as my Father granted one to me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on, and Matthew specifically uh, has it explicitly, you will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So we're like, oh, I get it now. Peter knows there's 12 thrones and one of them is going to be empty unless they fill it. No. No, that's not what's happening. And we'll see why here in just a moment. So when Jesus spoke these words to the 12, he said, you're going to sit on 12 thrones. You know who he was talking to, right? He was talking to Judas with all the other apostles. Judas is still one of the number, which means Jesus is saying that to Judas. But we know Judas is not going to be sitting on one of the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus was not promising, and the apostles didn't think he was promising. He was not promising that Judas in particular, or any of the apostles in particular, would sit on one of 12 thrones, especially if any of them turned away from following him. Judas turned away, so he's out. When Judas granted this kingdom to the 12, his point was not the specific names of the apostles, one of them being Judas, but the specific number of the apostles, 12, 12, and the entire new Covenant Israel that this number represented. 
So you see, 12 comes to have a beautiful significance. And the reason it's so beautiful is because it's been being used for, uh, no, I'm going to, for about 2,000 years, right? When Jacob had his 12 sons and they became the 12 tribes of Israel, 12 has been in use for 2,000 years. That's why it's so beautiful. That's why Jesus chooses 12 apostles, because of the beauty of what that number represents for this new covenant Israel that Jesus is forming. So when Jesus granted, in your handout, it represented, it is this new covenant Israel, if we go back to that passage in Luke, it's this new covenant Israel that was persecuted by the old covenant ethnic Israel. Galatians 4.29 and that will one day be vindicated when we, when it, sits in judgment over the Old Covenant Israel. Old Covenant, not not over Jews, but over that Old Covenant people that rejected the Messiah. And you can look up the references there in Revelation. Jesus talks about this. Those who say they are Jews, but they are not, I will make them bow down before your feet, and they will know that I have loved you. Indeed, we can quote Paul who says, What does the scripture say? Cast out the servant woman and her son, for the son of the servant woman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. The reason Peter sees that a twelfth apostle is necessary, you see it now? It's not because he's, he, he's, he's envisioning twelve literal thrones, he's got to fill one of them, or he knows God needs to fill one. Instead, he sees this is necessary to testify to the fact that this new covenant community, which is about to be birthed, which is about to be birthed, it is in fact the new covenant Israel. God is faithful to his promises. God is keeping his promises. The 12 tribes, as they were always intended to be. We're getting a sense of who we are as, as a people. And it's in this sense that the New Covenant Israel, and when I say, again, New Covenant Israel, I'm talking about the assembly, the church, the ecclesia. It's in this sense that this Israel can be referred to symbolically in the New Testament as the 12 tribes of Israel. And I'm going to give you just a couple of pictures of this so that you can see who who you are, who we are as the people of God. James addressed his letter to the 12 tribes who are in the dispersion. Even though in his day, the 12 tribes of ethnic Israel could no longer be identified. And even though he is clear, he is not writing to all Jews, but only to those who have faith in Jesus. When the Apostle John describes the new creation that God is going to bring about, He describes it in terms of a new Jerusalem. And he tells us that the city has 12 gates. 12 gates. That's beautiful. And that written on those gates are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. The city also has 12 foundation stones. And written on those foundation stones are the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. 
Now the point here then, you say, well, we've got 12 tribes on the gates, 12 apostles on the stones. What does that mean? Does that mean that Jerusalem is home to two different people or two different peoples? Why does John describe this like this? It's because of this. He, he's describing the nation that dwells here. One people dwelling in unity together in one city. He's describing this nation in terms of its foundation. And what's the foundation of this people? It's the, it's the apostles of the Lamb. It's the apostolic message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is our foundation now, and it will be to all eternity. The foundation of God's people is the redemptive blood, shed blood of Jesus Christ, upon which for all eternity we will stand as our confidence and our joy and our hope. That's the foundation. But he also describes the nation that dwells here in terms of its people. And he describes that, symbolically speaking, as the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel, which we know is fulfilled in the New Covenant Israel, represented by 12 apostles. 12 tribes, 12 apostles, one people dwelling together in unity with one accord in the city of God. Not only does the city have 12 gates and 12 foundation stones, but the wall of the city is 144 cubits, 12 times 12. Now, you be careful, be careful because, you know, people get into numerology. It's like, oh, I found a number. And we, we try to discover what the number means. You can do that only in the right context. Apocalyptic literature is a place that we ought to. It's intended. And then you also can only discern, discern the meaning of a number if there is exegetical reasons in the text to find that meaning. So it's not about fancy. So we know 144 is chosen for that reason. That's why when the NASB says it was 72 yards, they've, it's a grave disservice. I don't really care about 72 yards. No one does. It's 144 cubits. Now that means something. The city itself is 12,000 stadia squared. 12,000 by 12,000 by 12,000. So when the NASB says it was 1,500 miles, that's a bit of trivia that's utterly pointless and worthless. There's 12,000 stadia squared. And on either side of the river that flows through the city is the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit. Yielding its fruit every month for 12 months all year long. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations who have all been gathered together now as the people of God. Now, I'm going to put something else in here, and I've scribbled a lot of notes, so I'll see if I can. We begin to see. You've, you've all heard of the 144,000. Uh, if you've heard about Jehovah's Witnesses, you've definitely heard of the 144,000. Right? That's this elite group. Um, even, in, even in certain sectors in Christianity, the 144,000 is an elite group of Christians. That's what it is. But there are no elite groups of Christians, we know. So we know that's got to be a wrong interpretation. We begin to see now how the 12,000 who are sealed from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, though Dan is not included, so when it says each of the 12 tribes, it plays with the tribes to get 12, while not including Dan. From each of the 12 tribes of Israel, for a total... 
of 12 times 12,000 is 144,000. 12,000 exactly to the number from each tribe sealed. Who is this 144,000 representing? It is symbolically representing us, brothers and sisters. It is representing the complete number of all God's elect in his new covenant assembly. His new covenant Israel, the church. We are part of the 144,000. The 144,000, John says in Revelation, are those who have the name of the Lamb and of his Father written on their foreheads. We have the name of the Lamb and of his Father written on our foreheads because we belong to God and to the Lamb. We are his. In Revelation, the 144,000 are those who have been purchased from the earth. We have been purchased from the earth by the blood of the Lamb. In Revelation, they are those who have not been defiled with women, meaning sexual immorality, for they are virgins, meaning they are devoted wholly to the Lamb. So taken, quote, literally, and I interpret it literally, they're literally men in the vision. In the, in the vision, they are in fact men. But this is not a group of 12,000 elite male Christians. This description of these 12,000 times 12 saints who've been sealed is meant to describe their wholehearted, pure devotion to the Lamb. In Revelation, these 144,000 are those who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. That's who they are. If you want to know who the 144,000 are, look for the people following the Lamb wherever he goes. And we know that we are among those who follow our shepherd, the shepherd who is the Lamb, wherever he goes. In Revelation, these are those who have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And we know that we have been purchased in the same way. And then he says, no lie is found in their mouth. And a lie is representative of of all hypocrisy and defilement in the heart. So what's found in the mouth reflects the heart. So what he's saying is that these 144,000, no lie is found in their mouth because they've been washed, they've been glorified, they've been, they've been wiped clean of all their guilt. For they are blameless. You've just read a description of yourself, brothers and sisters, both now and ultimately on that day when we are glorified. So, The 144,000 in the first half of Revelation 7 are the same, and I love this, this is so exciting, go home and read Revelation chapter 7 when you get home, I'm very serious about that. Because the 144,000 in the first half of Revelation 7 are the same as that in the second half of Revelation 7, suddenly the 144,000 give way to this great multitude which no one can count. I can count to 144,000. No one can count this multitude from every nation, not just from the 12 tribes of Israel, but from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues in the second half of Revelation 7. The 144,000 
are the same as the great multitude. It's just describing the same group under two categories, under two pictures. The first is necessary so that we see it is the new Israel tied to God's redemptive plan that he's been working ever since he called Abraham and even before that when he made the promise to Adam and Eve. But then it's necessary to have the second part so that we see that now this new Israel is encompassing all the peoples of the earth. All of God's elect, the complete number, which will be in the end innumerable. This great multitude, John says, are those who stand day and night before the throne and before the Lamb. What what are the 144,000? What's unique about the 144,000? They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Well, that's, that's the great multitude. They, too, follow the Lamb wherever he goes. They, too, have no lie in their mouth and are blameless. They, they stand day and night before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in robes that have been made white in the blood of the Lamb. I hope that 144,000, 12,000, 144, and 12... It's beginning to mean something to us. None of the New Testament had been written when Peter addressed this gathering of believers. He, didn't, he wasn't reading Revelation. There's much that Peter, we know, still doesn't understand. But Peter does know this much. The number of the apostles must be brought to twelve. The new covenant community, which is about to be birthed, will be the new covenant Israel. The 12 tribes, as they were always meant to be. And you know what that means? The home. The home of this new covenant community is a new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven from God. So we read in verses 24 to 26, which we're going to, again, we'll look at more closely either next week or the following. And they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsippus, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed. They prayed because, because they're praying for the coming of the kingdom, and they see that the choice of this apostle has everything to do with the coming of the kingdom. And they said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. Ah, do you just breathe a sigh when you get to that part? You say, ah, now we're ready. We weren't ready until now. Now we are. In your hand, only now is the stage fully set for the coming of the Spirit, the apostolic witness to begin, and the new covenant Israel to be born. So two questions. One, do we do we have this joyful and and powerful like like it's pretty deeply rooted in us sense of our identity because i what i see with this 
12 uh, with, with this Israel starting in Jerusalem and expanding and encompassing all the nations. What I see is the need for us to have a healthy, powerful sense of our identity as a people. As a new covenant Israel, we're part of this plan that God's been working out from the beginning. We're not something new. We are new. (laughs) We're not new. From every nation, all tribes, peoples, and tongues. Is this my most basic and fundamental identity? Or am I finding it somewhere else? Is this who I am? And I, I like to ask myself, at the end of the day, who am I? Now, you could answer that in a lot of healthy ways, scripturally. But today, I just want to say, I'm a member of the 144,000. It's who I am. I'm a citizen of the new covenant community that is the new covenant Israel, built on the foundation of the 12 apostles, whose home is the city with 12 gates, with the names of the 12 tribes written on the gates. That's who I am. Or am I viewing myself in some other light? Is this Israel where I find my truest sense of belonging? Because this is the people. We could say, this is the number to which, in fact, I do belong. It's not a matter of how you feel. It's not a matter of, ah, I don't feel like I'm in with the club here. I don't feel like I have, I'm, I'm, I'm gelling like I would like to. No, it's just a matter of, that's a fact. That's, this is my people. This is who we are. In the old, if the old covenant Jew, I ask, had such a powerful sense of his identity in the covenant, in the covenant people to which he belonged, in your handout, how much more should we? I mean, if you were a Jew in the old covenant, you were proud to be a Jew in the old covenant. You had the covenant promises. You had the covenant God who was Yahweh. How much more? How much more? Should we have our identity in the covenant people to which we belong today? How much more should we be able to sing as we will in a moment? I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of Yahweh. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, which is built as a city joined together. You can see his love, his affection for this city and for the people that gather there. As a city joined all together to which the tribes, the tribes of Yah go up. A testimony for Israel. To give thanks to the name of Yahweh for their thrones sit for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. All right, so that's the first question. Where's your identity? Do you rejoice in the number 12? But second, if you do, then won't we be continually devoting ourselves with one accord to prayer? For what? For the peace and the prosperity of this people. That's that's how this is then joined together. If we have our identity in this, if this is what we love, then this is what we pray for. We can't say, I love this and not pray for it. This is the nature of, of how it works. So won't we then always be praying together for the coming of Christ's kingdom in and through the church's faithful witness to the ends 
of the earth. And I ask again, if the old covenant Jew, and I'm not, I don't mean I'm not despising them, but I'm just saying, if they could pray with longing for the peace of Jerusalem, that's what they did, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, how much more then should we, the new covenant Israel, be praying for the peace and the prosperity of the city to which we belong? How much more should we be singing today in the second half of Psalm 122? Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. This is what we pray. May they prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls. We pray that today. And tranquility within your palaces. For the sake of my brothers, the 144,000. For the sake of my people, my companions, I will now say... May peace be within you. For the sake of the house of Yahweh our God, I will seek your good. What this is really about is reevaluating our priorities. It's about calling us back like a reality check to what is it that I am as a Christian? What does it mean? Who am I? The question then we can close with is are we seeking the good? Of Jerusalem? Are we seeking the good of its people? Is this the city and the people to which, in fact, we, to which you and to which I belong? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the beauty of the assembly, the ecclesia the church that you have had throughout all ages. We thank you that while this this was a remnant in the Old Testament without its own assembly, as it were, yet you have called it out now and, and created it as the assembly, the assembly of your people. And that you have called us as the boundaries have expanded all the way even to our our places. You have called us to be a part of this new covenant Israel, of this 144,000, of this people built in the foundation of the 12 apostles. Lord, may we find in this people our truest identity, in this people clothed in white robes because they have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. And this be who we are. Forgive us for the other places we've found our identity. That it's been more ultimate in other places, in other groups, in other in other contexts. And forgive us, O oh Lord, for as a result our failure to be praying for the peace of Jerusalem, to be praying for the peace of your city and of its people. Lord, we pray today that that we would be a church devoted continuously with one accord to prayer. And that in and through these prayers, according to your sovereign will, you would bring your kingdom. We thank you that we can pray with the full knowledge 
that it depends ultimately not upon us, but upon Christ's promise that he will indeed fulfill as he builds his church for your glory and for the glory of our Savior who fills all in all. Help us now as we sing to rejoice in the city to which we belong and to pray even as we sing for the peace of Jerusalem and its prosperity. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.